Hi guys, um, it is uh, Cinco de Mayo, so happy Cinco de Mayo for you guys. Obviously, you'll be most likely listening to this on Wednesday, um, but I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, your last week since I last uh, recorded and spoke to you, quote unquote. Um, and I hope you guys are looking forward to finishing up school and uh, starting summer break. Um, and hopefully things are opening up and people getting better and coronavirus um, obviously going away, hopefully, as well. Today, we are going to do a topic that really interests me. Um, obviously, you guys all know I'm per- personally more interested in the older stuff we've been talking about. So give me some ancient history and some medieval history and I'll take some renaissance and enlightenment as well. This is kind of one of those last topics where um, there's a lot of stuff that I find really interesting about this, but because I did never study this really in college and grad school, there's still a lot for me personally to learn as well. Um, but it's also very much a bridge period between that old world that we've been talking about and a lot of the things that take place um, in the 20th century. So this is the reason why I haven't been plowing along and getting us to like the year 2000. Um, I know when I talk to you guys at the start of the year, if you guys stop by my classroom in August, um, I think I mentioned like I want to get to basically like the Cold War in the 19 like 70s and maybe the year 2000. Um, Obviously, that's not going to happen, though. And I kind of wanted to explain why. Um, For one thing, you guys are going to be learning about all that when you do U.S. history. We're definitely going to touch on that in either my class, if I teach it, or in Miss Powell's class. Um, In addition, I very strongly believe that really getting a good foundation in the 18th century and the 19th century, which is what we've been doing during this quarantine, um, is really going to help you further understand the stuff in the 20th century, such as World War I, such as World War II, the Cold War, and all that stuff. So my goal is to get us a really strong, solid foundation. Um, and then my hope is that you would either Uh, remember this and take it uh, to your U.S. history class whenever you might take that. Um, Or you might be interested in this um, and you might read further into things like World War I and World War II on your own time. It's my goal. Um, So it's a bit of a long introduction today. I did want to kind of explain that because quite frankly we're going to get to World War I I'm probably going to explain to you like what the causes were and maybe a little bit about what happened during that war. Um, And we are not going to go beyond that because we quite frankly have run out of time Um, due to the fact that I really am only allowed to give you uh, 45 minutes of work per day. Um, So let's get started. Today's topic um, is, uh, it sounds very simple revolutions of 1848. It's actually a very broad topic. Um, The period we are going to be touching on is not just the year 1848. We are going to be looking at uh, 1814. um, And while we will end our discussion um, in like the 1870s today, um, we will pick up 
when we do World War I uh, with a lot of what we are talking about today. World War I, you might remember from last year, um, has four main causes. It's an acronym, M-A-I-N. Um, and quite a lot of those causes are going to be the things that we talk about today as well as some of the stuff we've been talking about the last couple of days. Um, my friend who is a 20th century historian, uh, she would always ask... Um, very rhetorically, what's the cause of World War One? And everyone's always like, oh, the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. And the answer is not that, actually. That's a very simple answer. Um, the whole 19th century, everything that is going to be talked about today, in addition to some of the colonialism and imperialism stuff you guys have been learning about, uh, that is the real answer. Uh, we're going to see why. Um, this is a long introduction, I apologize. So this is going to be a notes day, um, and this is going to be a notes day for Wednesday as well as Thursday, so you have two days to work on this. Um, so you can halfway through uh, kind of stop yourself and pick up as you will on Thursday. Um, by all means, feel free to do that. Uh, this is a bit of a longer notes day. This is one of those notes days where if we had been in class, it would take us the whole hour and 30 minutes to get through these notes. So it is a bit longer, um, but it does really set a kind of establish um, what we're going to be finishing up our class with. So revolutions of 1848. If you want to go to slide number two, slide number two is just a section slide um, because we're going to break up these notes into three uh, distinct parts. This first part is going to be looking at political developments um, in the early years of this time frame that we've been talking about. Um, so 1814. Um, kind of up until like 1830, I guess. Um, the second part is going to be looking at economic changes. And some of this is going to be familiar to you because you've already done a reading on this. Uh, but I would like to apply it now to what we are going to be talking about. And then the last part of the notes is going to be looking at um, how these all tie together and some examples of how this is being shown uh, throughout this period we're looking at. So slide number three. Napoleon fell for the first time in 1814. Um, this is when he got sent to the island of Elba off the coast of Italy. Um, if you look at Italy, uh, which uh, is kind of on the bottom part of the map, if you look at the part of Italy next to the Papal States, it says Tuscany. There's a little island off the coast of Tuscany. Uh, that's called Elba. Um, that is where Napoleon spent a couple of months in 1814 until 1815. Um, and while Napoleon was on Elba, and also while he was back in France trying to retake over everything, uh, a group of diplomats met in the city of Vienna, which is in Austria, and were deciding basically the fate of Europe. Um, the goal of this uh, meeting, which was called the Congress of Vienna, was to uproot the revolutionary seed. Now, revolutionary seed is going to be very broad. Um, basically, uh, the causes of the French Revolution, uh, this whole Napoleon thing, so to speak, um, as well as the whole kind of enlightenment spirit that had taken not only Europe by storm, but North America by storm, for instance. Uh, the United States is uh, in existence because of this revolutionary seed. 
The primary goal of the Congress of Vienna is basically to establish a status quo, uh, a balance of power within Europe. They're going to take a map of Europe, they're going to draw up borders, they're going to put uh, kings back on the thrones in those new countries they've drawn up, um, and they are going to uh, prevent future violence by getting rid of things like freedom of speech, voting rights for people. Um, it's a very, the word is that we're going to use conservative idea. Um, and in fact, the people who attended this conference were elites uh, from these countries that uh, were taking part. Um, so one thing I would really like to impress upon you, the words conservative and liberal. These words are used differently depending upon the period in which you were talking. Um, so for instance, you might be considered conservative today. Maybe you are, uh, you support the Republican Party. Um, maybe you're more of a libertarian. I don't know. Um, I'm going to take a guess that if you like the idea of voting rights and if you like the idea of free speech and freedom of religion, um, in the context of 1815, you would probably be more liberal. These are very relative terms. So just because something uh, is conservative today does not necessarily mean it would have been conservative back in 1815. Um, just because someone is considered liberal today does not mean they would be liberal back in 1815. And in fact, a liberal today would probably look at the liberal position in 1815 and be like, uh, this is extremely conservative. Um, so these are very uh, relative terms. So don't look at it like, oh, conservative. I'm conservative today, so I don't like these liberals in 1815. Or, oh, uh, I'm a liberal today, so I don't like these conservatives in 1815. Uh, they're very relative. It has a completely different meaning today than it did back then. One thing I really want to impress upon you um, as we talk about this. The people who are meeting at the Congress of Vienna are very conservative in 1815 terms. Uh, they are usually uh, nobles, aristocrats, or they are members of uh, the monarchy. So maybe their father is a king or they're a prince or something like that. Um, and they want to bring Europe back to this period in which kings ruled Europe. Um, and the people, so to speak, just listened and followed and didn't necessarily have any say in the government. That is what conservatism means in the context of 1815. It's not what it means today, but in 1815, that is what is going on. These conservatives also set up what is called the Council, um, sorry, the Concert of Europe. Um, and this would be a group of these conservatives who would meet occasionally. They would discuss the ideas that is, uh, are problematic for them. So say you have, um, you're the king of France and in Paris a new newspaper sprouts up that is writing uh, nasty things about you. Uh, you might take this view to the concert of Europe and then all of these different conservative monarchs can get together to get rid of this newspaper, to get rid of the freedom of the press in their countries or so on and so forth. Now, These conservative ideologies, as you can imagine, are not the only uh, thought process that can be found in Europe at this time. You have more liberal people. Um, 
liberalism once again in the uh, 19th century context, not in the modern day context. You have people who um, think the liberal philosophy is too conservative and um, might consider themselves to be um, socialists or later on Marxists as well. Um, so you, it's not just uh, conservatives that you're going to find amongst the uh, well-read, well-to-do person uh, living in Europe at this time. However, the Congress of Vienna is catering to this conservative ideology. Let's go to slide number four. Uh, like I said, conservatives tended to be monarchs. They tend to be advisors or nobles. They tend to have benefited from a monarchical system. Um, they don't necessarily want there to be freedom of speech. They don't necessarily want there to be freedom of religion. So Conservatives will also be members of the churches, um, so the Pope is probably going to be conservative. Um, the Archbishop of, uh, I don't know, uh, Mainz is going to probably be conservative. Um, if you are the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's Protestant, you're probably going to be more conservative as well. Um, they oppose freedom of the press. They oppose freedom of speech, usually. Um, they believe that natural rights... Uh, and democracy only lead to chaos and turmoil, as seen in the French Revolution. Um, definitely the French Revolution was chaotic and tumultuous um, as to whether it was natural rights, this idea of freedom of speech and freedom of religion that actually led to that. Uh, I'll let you guys decide. They want basically to resurrect the old order of how things were done. Um, now, in one way, these people who like monarchies and who like established religions and don't want people to have freedom of religion, and so they do get what they want. They establish the borders as they want. They establish peace for a period of time. So for the next 15 years especially, Europe is very peaceful. Um, so they get what their stated goal is. Uh, however we are going to see in this presentation that uh, what goes on at the, Council, uh, the Congress of Vienna um, lays the seeds and the framework for future conflicts that are going to take place over the course of this next century, and in particular are uh, extremely consequential in the start of World War I. Let's look at slide number five, uh, which is talking about um, liberalism. Now, if you were to look back at the American Revolution and you look at the people who are responsible for the American Revolution, um, Thomas Jefferson, for instance, uh, he would have been considered probably a liberal in this particular time period. Same thing with like, George Mason, another uh, person who uh, is responsible for like our Constitution. Um, Alexander Hamilton is probably more of a liberal, though he does have some more conservative tendencies in this period as well. These are the people who are inspired by the Enlightenment. They've read Voltaire. They've read uh, John Locke. Uh, they like what they've read. They believe in freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Um, they are inspired by the French Revolution and its ideals. Maybe not the results in terms of the reign of terror, um, but they are inspired by this concept of suffrage where men have the right to vote. Notice it's men, not women. Um, usually, however, um, because these people 
have read Voltaire, they tend to be wealthier. Um, generally, they're going to be members of the bourgeoisie, uh, which is the kind of middle class in European society. They tend to live in cities. Um, and so they tend to be more concerned with the lives of themselves and people around them. So liberalism in this sense is not going to necessarily be looking at uh, what we would call, I guess, the working class or the industrial working class. Um, they're not as concerned with farmers who live out um, in the countryside. Uh, they're concerned with city folk like lawyers, doctors, shopkeepers, people who have a little bit of money and capital um, and who, uh, because they have the this uh, these resources already, um, want to be heard within their government. They want to have a constitution. They want to have the right to vote. Uh, they want to have separation of powers and not just have one monarch uh, deciding everything for everyone. They believe in natural rights. They tend to believe in the right to property, uh, the right to freedom of the press, the right to assemble and protest speech. Um, in addition, they strongly support capitalism, usually. So they're very strongly capitalist, um, whereas conservatives might tend to take more of a mercantilist uh, perspective in this particular period. So you're going to see a lot of liberals um, uh, kind of being those people who are making money, uh, running factories, perhaps. People who are getting involved in business are going to be more liberal, so to speak. Um, they're not going to like things like socialism. They're not going to like things like communism. That's why I'm, I'm really trying to hit home the fact that, um, conservative and liberal in this slide presentation and in this period in history is not by any stretch of the terms the same thing as the words we use today to describe people. So you need to kind of put that aside and you need to think about it in the ways that I'm talking about here. Let's go on to slide number six. At the same time that liberal and conservative philosophies are being discussed, you also have grumblings um, in countries around and across Europe uh, over ethnicity. Um, Europe, uh, for centuries, um, was ruled by monarchies, um, and these monarchs, uh, in some cases they were ethnically of the same ethnicity, I guess, spoke the same language as the people they're ruling over. We have some exceptions. Obviously, when the French went and attacked and took over England in 1066, ethnically, they are not Anglo-Saxons. They are French. Um, they're Normans, and they speak Norman. They don't speak English. Um, you have some exceptions as well when, for instance, I talked about how Napoleon put his brother on the throne in Spain. He is uh, Corsican, his brother, not Spanish. Um, but basically, you would have these rulers, um, and they would perhaps uh, marry their daughters to another ruler, and their daughters would take with them some land as a dowry. Um, and so then that land, maybe a tiny little county or a city or something, would then be attached to a new country. So land, so to speak, for the course of centuries, exchanges hands quite a lot across Europe, especially when you look at places like Germany and um, Italy. Um, as a result, you have people of different ethnicities who are living within the same kingdom um, or the same empire. Uh, for instance, in Austria-Hungary, which is an empire um, during the century, you have Austria and then you have Hungary, two completely different uh, 
peoples. They're ethnically different. Hungarians do not speak uh, a language that is at all similar to people in Austria. It's actually one of like three languages in Europe that is not Indo-European, if you remember that term. Um, so these are very different people and they're stuck in the same empire. They don't really understand each other. They have different viewpoints over what they want to accomplish. Um, so for instance, in uh, for uh, like for instance in like Austria, maybe if their uh, main industry is trade, whereas in Hungary their main industry is farming. If you have mostly Austrians who are in the government, they're not going to be focusing on the needs of the Hungarians. Um, so you have these people who are very very different, live very different lives, who are kind of stuck within a country together. Um, and in this particular case, the Hungarians um, often feel alienated from the Austrians who are running the show. So nationalists are people who want to make countries out of different ethnicities. They want to focus on common uh, ethnicities and uniting those common ethnicities to make its own country. So you see a lot of, for instance, Hungarians in the Austro-Hungarian Empire who want to uh, split up from Austria and make their own country. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and this is actually going to happen as a result of World War uh, I. Um, you see people in Germany uh, who live in different states. So Germany is not a country at this point. It hasn't been the entire time we've been doing world history. Um, where they want to make an overall German country because there is a common ethnicity amongst all these people who live in uh, different places. Same thing in Italy. People in the Italian peninsula who have not been united since the Roman Empire, they want to make a country called Italy based around this common ethnicity. This is called nationalism. Um, there are issues associated with nationalism, as we're going to see. Uh, for one thing, it breeds intolerance. Um, if you are live in Hungary and maybe you are Austrian or maybe you're Italian and you just are like a merchant that lives there. Uh, if everyone else is unifying around their common Hungarian um, uh, ethnicity that they have in common with everyone else and you're kind of left out, you're going to be an outsider and there's quite frankly no way you can change your ethnicity in case you haven't noticed. Um, a particular group that's really going to get left out across Europe is, of course, the Jews, who ethnically are Jewish. They have been marrying within the Jewish community for centuries because they've been discriminated against. Um, and, for instance, in Germany, when they try and unite Germany, um, they're not necessarily talking about making a German state for all people living in Germany so much as they're talking about making a German state for all Germans living in Germany. Uh, you can become a second-class citizen, basically, if you are not of the right ethnicity in one of these nationalist countries. Um, other ethnic groups tend to see persecution within uh, these national identities and these borders um, due to the fact that they're seen as the other Let's go to slide seven. Once again, just like a sectional slide, we're going to start talking about economic changes found um, in Europe in this period. And like I said, these economic changes should not be um, new to you since you've read about them uh, and took a quiz on them last week. Um, slide eight. We've talked about capitalism. Uh, capitalism is an economic system in which uh, the accumulation of capital uh, 
is principal, so the accumulation of money or factories or resources that you can use, um, as well as exchanging what you have for something else on a free market um, is uh, critical as well. So for instance, um, I exchange my knowledge of history for a salary, which I have agreed upon with uh, the uh, administration at the school. Um, And uh, they in turn uh, require my knowledge of history more than they require the salary that they're going to be giving me. When I go to the store um, today to get stuff for my dinner tonight, I'm going to exchange my salary or part of my salary uh, for, I don't know, taco meat because it's Cinco de Mayo and I'm going to make tacos tonight. Um, Or as well as uh, a dessert that I'm going to buy. And I value those things more than I'm valuing the $10 that I'm going to spend on them because this is a free market system. A free market also means the government doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. Um, Usually, uh, there are some things that Adam Smith thought that the government should be able to uh, regulate within a free market, though it's very few. It's only like four things. Um, Capitalism is the system we use today, albeit we kind of have a mixed economy system um, where we have a lot of government influence as well. If you want a purely capitalist system, you need to go to a place like uh, Singapore or Hong Kong um, or uh, I think New Zealand is... It's kind of going more towards that mixed economy, but I think it's ranked much higher than us on the list of purely capitalist institutions. Um, so capitalism, discovered by a guy named Adam Smith, uh, is going to be a system basically in which you specialize in something and then you sell that specialized uh, trade, that skill you have, or the product that you're able to make um, in exchange for money or other things that you want. Other economic thinkers um, who think that capitalism causes selfishness um, will tend to push for improving economic well-being of everyone in society through something called socialism. In socialism, uh, different means of production, such as factories, railroads, are all owned by the people, usually through the government. So if you go to a place uh, like Norway, which is... um, considered to be one of those kind of happy socialist places, or like Sweden, for instance. Um, The railroads and the factories are going to be owned by the government, and you work for the government if you're working on uh, one of those uh, institutions. If you go to England, um, uh, which is not socialist, so to speak, but it does have more socialist uh, institutions, the healthcare system is run by the government. It's called the NHS. And so doctors and nurses and anyone who works for the NHS are government employees. Um, It's kind of bad for them because it's kind of like teachers in this country where they don't often get paid as much as they might want to. Um, And they constantly are having to uh, protest for higher pay. Um, So these big institutions in a socialist society are run by the government. Now, that's not communism. I want you to know that. It's, communism is a very different thing. Um, but capitalism is the accumulation of capital is good. Exchange on the free market is good. Um, self-interest 
uh, you're kind of expected to make your own way in capitalism. You should be self-reliant and you should have a skill that you're able to sell uh, in exchange for other things. Socialism is going to um, be where these certain institutions are not run by individuals. They're run by um, the government. Let's go to slide number nine. Um, I mentioned that socialism is not communism. Uh, communism is a very, very extreme version of socialism uh, in which all the means of production are held by the community. So farms, for instance, uh, all land is held by the community. Um, there, is no, there are no classes in society. Um, so everyone is on the same level as everyone else. Um, I, like one of those things that a lot of people hear about, for instance, in the Soviet Union is that you call people like comrade, for instance. Um, so you don't have titles, for instance. You uh, ha call people all the same thing because it's supposed to be a classless society. Uh, communism comes from a pamphlet that is written by a German philosopher named Karl Marx. He teamed up uh, with a um, someone who did not like um, uh, capitalism called Friedrich Engels. Uh, they wrote a pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto. Uh, you're probably going to have to read it if you take certain classes in college. It's actually a very interesting book. I had to read it in my uh, Western Civ class in college. And there are a lot of famous quotes from it. Um, uh, so usually you read it in college in like history or like philosophy or political science. Um, Marx's theory in the Communist Manifesto is that all of history is driven by economic struggle. So um, all the major events that we have talked about have been caused by different classes fighting with one another. Um, and this has also become a way of looking at history. I personally tend to not subscribe to that particular view. Um, that being said, uh, communism as well as Marx's theories um, do also pose different ways that we can examine literature as well as historical events. So all forms of uh, the society are run by the government. Um, people can still usually have private property in the sense that like, I can go to the store and buy myself a book and it's mine, it's not the community's. Um, but those big things like who owns land, who owns businesses, who owns factories, who owns railroads, who owns um, your dentist's office, uh, in a communist society, all that is going to be owned by the government. Um, and if we were able to get to World War I and the Russian Revolution, uh, we could examine that a bit more. But unfortunately, I don't think we're going to. Very sad. So slide number 10. Um, let's go on to looking at how all of these different things uh, correspond with one another and how they are kind of going to play out in the grand scheme of things. Slide number 11. First place I'd like us to look at and see how economic and political change is making an impact is going to be in Eastern Europe. Um, and if you can, look at a map, um, a larger map, and please find where in the world I'm talking about right now. So look and find where Eastern Europe is and where the Ottoman Empire was so that you can kind of see in relation to the rest of Europe and Asia what we're talking about. Um, we talked about how one of the ways to date the end of the Middle Ages is the fall of the Ottoman Empire um, in 1453. 
since 1453, um, as well as, did I say the fall of the Ottoman Empire? The uh, fall of the Byzantine Empire, sorry, 1453, um, to the Ottomans. Uh, one of the, uh, so the Ottoman Empire had basically controlled all of Eastern Europe since like the 1400s. So if you went to Greece, if you went to uh, modern-day Serbia, Bosnia, Albania, uh, Romania, um, all those countries were under the control of the Ottomans um, since basically the Middle Ages, or the end of the Middle Ages, I should say. So for about like 400 years or so. Um, because of this idea of nationalism, um, and also because at this time the Ottoman Empire was very weak, it had been controlling things for about 400 years, and uh, the last century of it was not very good for the Ottomans. Um, because the Ottoman Empire was weak, a lot of these groups within Eastern Europe decided to revolt. In 1804, the Serbs revolted um, against the Ottoman Empire, and they succeeded in creating their own uh, country, Serbia. Uh, they allied themselves with the Russian Empire, which was uh, part of the reason why they were able to win, because the Russians would assist them in exchange for uh, they would help the Russians and probably give like uh, give the Russians a foothold in this particular part of the world. Um, in 1821, the Greeks revolted against the Ottomans. Uh, a lot of Europeans actually uh, went to go help the Greeks because Greece, even though it was kind of a mess at this point, like everyone remembers like ancient Greece when Greece was like a really big deal. Um, and they've like been reading like Greek poets and Greek uh, playwrights in this period. Um, and so because Greece holds such an important place in Western civilization, you see like Lord Byron, who is a major poet in this period, he goes to Greece and he winds up dying there as well, but he winds up like fighting for the Greek cause um, in order to help the Greeks out. And so a lot of people uh, in Western Europe will go and fight against the Ottoman Empire in Greece. Um, and the Greeks are eventually going to gain their independence from the Ottomans. Um, Eastern Europe, even though it gets away from the Ottoman Empire, does still have its issues. It's going to constantly be fighting with Ottomans, with the Russians, with each other. Um, and eventually, by 1914, Eastern Europe is going to be very widely known as the, uh, the, sorry, the powder keg of Europe. Basically, uh, if you light a tiny little fire, just light a match and just throw it on it, a tiny little skirmish, it's going to erupt the entire thing. It's a very destabilized part of Europe. Um, and this is just commonly expected. Uh, and everyone kind of accepts this. Eventually, when World War I is going to start in 1914, it starts in Eastern Europe because one tiny little thing that can happen there the shooting of an archduke in Austria, uh, is able to erupt a, a war uh, across the world, quite frankly. Let's go to slide 12. The French um, kingdom that was set up at the Congress of Vienna uh, allowed for uh, a French king called Louis XVIII to take over. Um, and basically, there's a semi-constitutional monarchy where he basically has run the show, but he kind of answers to like a an estates general type of thing, like a parliament thing. Um, he dies 
and then his brother, uh, Charles X, becomes king. Um, and he does not like this idea of a constitutional monarchy, so he suspends the legislature. He does not allow people to vote, um, and he restricts the rights of the press in Paris. And in July 1830, Paris revolts against um, uh, the king, and the king flees to England. This is called the uh, July Revolution. Um, France establishes a constitutional monarchy at this particular point, uh, where uh, the king has to answer to parliament, or to, it's not parliament, but like a general assembly um, in this period. Uh, and the new king at this point is going to be called uh, Louis-Philippe, King Louis-Philippe uh, the first, I believe. Uh, he favors the middle class as well as the bourgeoisie in Paris. He tends to like walk around and he thinks of himself as one of the common men. Um, so he'll like shake hands with just the random like, I don't know, uh, fishmonger that he sees on the street. He wears Republican style clothing, so like a suit with a top hat as opposed to like wearing robes like a normal king would wear. So he likes to look at himself as being kind of one of the people, um, even though he's obviously the king. Um, and for a time, that works out very well for him. Let's go to slide number 13. Uh, to the north of France, um, there are also revolutionary rumblings. Following the Congress of Vienna, the... Uh, country of the Netherlands uh, was established in order to be a buffer uh, against France. So to the northeast of France, you have now the country of Belgium, uh, which at the time was joined with the Netherlands. Um, however, they're two very different countries. Um, Belgium, for one thing, is Catholic. The Netherlands is Protestant. Um, Belgians tend to speak, um, it's like 60% of Belgians speak French. Um, 40% speak a language called um, Flemish, which is like Dutch. Um, whereas people in the Netherlands speak Dutch. Uh, people in the Netherlands tend to be into trade um, and shipbuilding. The Dutch Golden Age is when the Dutch were like sailing around the world and setting up colonies in the Spice Islands. Uh, whereas in Belgium, they tend to be more industrial. They tend to have lots of factories, for instance. So Belgium wants out. They don't want to be part of the Protestant Netherlands. And so they gain their independence at the same time as France is kicking out um, uh, Charles X. So Belgium becomes its own country. It still can be used as a buffer against France. Um, and then the Netherlands become their own country uh, due to these cultural, linguistic, economic differences. Um, and the reason why they're able to establish their own country is because of the fact that the uh, July Revolution had taken place. Um, in response to this, uh, Metternich the guy who is the head of the Congress of Vienna, he makes the statement that when France sneezes, Europe catches a cold. Basically, uh, when France has an issue, uh, everyone else in Europe is going to have to suffer as a result. Um, so once again, this trying to impress upon uh, Europeans the importance of uh, stabilization, not having constant fighting, um, having political stability, uh, the conservatives in the European government are going to argue that this is more important than things like natural rights. Um, and you're going to uh, see that uh, this argument is going to continue. Let's go to slide 14. 
Now, this slide presentation is called 1848, and that's because uh, slide 14, 15, um, I think it's actually just slide 14 and 15, um, are going to be talking about the events that take place in 1848, which is called the Year of Revolutions. Um, but suffice it to say that more revolutions are going to take place across Europe. We're only really just talking about the ones in France and Germany. Um, and we'll briefly touch on the one that's in Italy as well. Um, in 1848, France was hit by a recession. Uh, there was also a bad harvest that year. Um, factories shut down, so lots of people lost their jobs. So it's kind of like a similar situation to at the start of the French Revolution in 1789. Um, price of bread began to rise. Uh, the government, instead of trying to assist with these issues, uh, they tried to stop people from complaining about these issues, such as like shutting down newspapers, imprisoning uh, journalists, silencing protesters. Um, and so as a result, in February of 1848, um, people in Paris rose up against the government. Louis-Philippe, um, the king, who was that kind of like uh, everyman type of king, he was forced to resign and abdicate the throne. Um, and as a result, what is called the Second Republic begins. Uh, later that year, um, Napoleon's nephew, who's called Napoleon III, he became uh, the... Um, first, it was kind of like the president of the assembly, and so he's just like the... It's, it's still a republic. Later on, he gets himself elected as emperor, um, and so the second empire comes uh, becomes a thing. France has had, like, five different types of government since the revolution, by the way. So you had, like, the first uh, monarchy, then you have the second republic, then you have the second empire. Oh, you had the first empire as well, which was when Napoleon was a thing. So they've had multiple different forms of government. Um, and we're going to see that they're going to have had uh, more since then. But France is basically now just, once again, uh, kicked out another king. Um, and now they're stuck with another empire, uh, as happened the last time they revolted. I love France. They're just so difficult to control. Um, slide 15. Germany also was impacted by the revolutions in 1848. Um, however, in Germany, the revolutions in 1848 were more of a sideshow that eventually is going to lead to something big rather than a huge change like you see in France. Talks of unifying Germany really begin to escalate in this period. They had been ignored in 1815 during the Congress of Vienna um, because everyone thought it would be too destabilizing. So the issue was that if you were to unite Germany, Germany um, into one country, you'd have to destabilize every single government that had been in place in all those smaller little countries. Um, so they didn't want to do that. If the goal is to stabilize Europe, that's not achieving that goal. Um, so Germany's still not unified, and in 1848, students and intellectuals who are seeing what's happening in France uh, demand unification. Uh, they basically, like, up, like they rise up against the government and they offer the king of Prussia, which is a part of Germany or like the German confederation, the throne, uh, and he flat out refuses. He says no, because as far as he's concerned, the people asking him to be king of Germany isn't good enough. He turns it down because he doesn't want a throne that, in his words, came from the gutter. 
Later on, he's going to be offered the same throne, but he's offered by uh, nobles and aristocrats, and he accepts it at that point. Slide 16. Um, one of the big things that happens in 1848, though, is uh, there is kind of this experience that um, Germany needs uh, some help. The king of Prussia, which is the most powerful part of Germany, um, appoints a Junker um, named Otto von Bismarck basically to help him run uh, Prussia and also by extension Germany. Um, he becomes the Prussian prime minister in 1862 and later on he's going to become the chancellor of Prussia. He is a politician, um, Bismarck is, uh, who bases his, de his decisions on something called realpolitik. Um, realpolitik, basically, is uh, the idea that power is more important than principles. You can kind of see it in um, today's world, where um, the United States, for instance, has a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has horrible human rights violations. Terrible. They will stone women if they uh, are accused, not convicted, of maybe uh, like cheating on their husbands. Or if you don't wear a, uh, an abaya when going out in public. Um, they didn't allow women the right to drive until about two years ago. Uh, they uh, assassinated a journalist in a consulate overseas um, two years ago. Uh, Saudi Arabia has horrible human rights violations, and yet their greatest ally is the United States. Essentially, that is a realpolitik um, decision that the U.S. has been making, because the principle that the United States does not support human rights violators is not as important as uh, like the economic benefits and the political benefits of keeping Saudi Arabia on our good sides is. So power is more important than principles. So you can say, oh, we do not support human rights violators. Iran, you violate people's rights. China, you violate people's rights. Russia, you violate people's rights. But if you're looking at real politically, it's more important that we don't call out our, our friend Saudi because we want to keep them on our good side and get cheap oil, basically. Power is more important than principles. And this is something that Bismarck really uh, pushes in the 19th century. Um, and it's quite frankly what gets Germany to become the most powerful country in continental Europe uh, up until World War I. Let's go to slide 17. Uh, through warfare, uh, Bismarck quickly establishes Prussia as the most important state within Germany. Um, as well as Prussia and then by default the other German states as the most powerful state in continental Europe. Uh, he enters Prussia into a series of wars against other people, first against Austria, um, uh, finally against France. Uh, France had traditionally been the most powerful state in Europe. It was unified, among other things. Um, and so with Bismarck building up the military in Germany, uh, putting money towards establishing factories, um, Bismarck makes Germany a real contender for the most powerful place in Europe. Um, his big speech he gives is called the Bluton Eisen speech. 
blood and iron, uh, which in German basically uh, means uh, through warfare as well as through industrialization, blood and iron, uh, we are going to make Germany the most powerful place. So he diverts funds, for instance, in Germany to build up the military. He um, uh, really tries to bring scientists to Germany so that they can establish factories, they can establish new ways of uh, creating things, natural resources that are needed. Um, so like making dyes, for instance, it's called the applied sciences, so that you can then sell uh, clothing and for cheaper, for instance, um, because you don't have to get natural dyes. Um, because he wants to show that Germany is the most powerful state in Europe, he basically starts a war with France. I think like it's something along the lines of he has someone in Germany send a letter to the king of France and he edits it so that it makes it sound like the Germans insulting the king. And then the king of France, or I'm sorry, the emperor of France, uh, Napoleon III goes to war with Germany over this insulting letter um, and Germany smashes France. Like they completely destroy them within a couple of weeks. Um, to celebrate their victory, all of the German princes get together uh, at Versailles in uh, outside Paris. That's Louis the uh, Fourteenth's a beautiful palace, um, and it's there in Versailles that all of the German princes decide to name uh, William I of Prussia the Kaiser of Germany because of all these political and uh, military machinations that Bismarck has been conducting behind the scenes. This is Bismarck, by the way, the picture on this slide. Um, and if you go on slide number 18 quickly, this uh, naming William as Kaiser of Germany uh, in, in Versailles Palace, is at the Hall of Mirrors. That's the picture you see on slide 18. So these are all the German princes acknowledging, you see they have their swords up in this beautiful palace, um, uh, this new Kaiser King uh, of Germany. Let's go back to 17 for a second. Kaiser is um, the German version of the word Caesar. So actually, Tsar is the Russian version of the word Caesar. Um, so by naming him Kaiser, you're very much calling back uh, the power that Julius Caesar has. Um, if you wanted to just name him King, it'd be Koning in German. But no, they decided to very deliberately call him the Kaiser. He is the Caesar of Germany. When they established uh, William as Kaiser of Germany, uh, in Versailles, they established what they called the Second Reich. Um, the First Reich, Reich means realm in German, uh, was the Holy Roman Empire, which had been throughout the Middle Ages, throughout the Renaissance, up until 1815 um, during the, uh, I'm sorry, up until the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so like 1804, I think, actually, is when the First Reich, the Holy Roman Empire, went away. Um, after World War One, the Second Reich is going to be destroyed. The Allies are going to get rid of it and set up a uh, what is called the Weimar Republic. Um, after the Weimar Republic ends uh, in 1932, when a young chap named Adolf Hitler comes to power and takes all the controls of Germany, um, he establishes what is called the Third Reich. Um, so you've probably heard of that one, but the second one is the one that is established in 1871.
Well, we're not going to get to talk about Germany's uh, Third Reich, uh, both unfortunately as well as maybe fortunately. But let's go on to Zaytin. Um, the German Empire, which has now established itself as the most powerful empire in Europe, is an economic powerhouse. It has the most factories across Europe, has the strongest army, with the exception of Great Britain. Britain is obviously an island. It is detached from the rest of Europe. Um, So Germany and continental Europe is the most powerful person. Britain, which very much involves itself around the world and is not necessarily only involved in Europe, uh, is the exception to that. It has the most colonies. It has the largest empire. Uh, But on the continent, Germany is king, basically. Uh, Germany has tremendous coal reserves. They have lots of iron reserves. Um, they have a well-educated workforce, well-disciplined workforce. I mentioned that in capitalism, uh, there are like four things that Adam Smith uh, argued that the government needs to be responsible for overseeing. One of those uh, is education. Uh, Adam Smith believes that uh, capitalism cannot flourish without education systems and that the government's the best prepared to give education systems. Um, So Germany does that. They provide large education systems for all people who live in the uh, country. They build mass transit, which is the, uh, one of the other things that um, Adam Smith believes the government needs to be responsible for. They build mass transit, so trains, highways, the Autobahn, which is that highway where you can go like 100 miles per hour on. Oh, what a dream. I wish that like I-40 was like that. Um, they establish factories across the country. Um, they establish colleges and technical colleges for people to study the applied scientists, I'm sorry, sciences and industrial uh practices um they also uh and this is not really a benefit actually it's not a benefit at all um they take nationalism to uh heights that are not necessarily good to have seen um the country really uh tries to put love of germany above everything else. Uh, It fosters mistrust in other institutions, so the church, particularly the Catholic church. Um, This concept of political philosophies and natural rights, it fosters distrust in that. Uh, Your individual rights should not be more important than the uh, prospects of your empire, for instance. Your religious beliefs should not be more important than the uh, prospects for your empire. So you should put all of those aside in order to make Germany be best. And that is one of the really big reasons why nationalism is not a good thing. Because I think a lot of us can agree that um, uh, your personal beliefs should not be second to this country, this overarching system, so to speak. Uh, Your religious beliefs, your country should more cater to your religious beliefs and should more cater to your uh, natural rights and make sure those are assured uh, above other things. And this is where Germany really starts to put itself on a crash course uh, towards war with other people, uh, not to mention also fostering distrust such as hatred of Jews within its... um, uh, borders, and we're going to see the product of this when we talk about World War One, and when you guys continue on to talking about like World War Two, you'll see this also happening as well. 
Um, let's go on to slide 19. Almost done. Got like three more slides. We're going to talk about Italian nationalism. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, my family's Italian. I find it remarkable that Italy was able to uh, galvanize itself in to the fact that it's able to actually get like a nationalist uh, system in place and like set up its own country. I'm really shocked by that. Um, just from what I've heard of Italy in like the past. Um, Italy has never been politically unified since the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. So basically like um, when uh, like Theodosius came uh, not Theodosius, um, Theodoric came, or Odysseus, or whatever, um, came and, like, took over, uh, Rome from Romulus Augustulus, it's Odysseus, not Theodor uh, Theodoric, um, in 476, Italy has never been unified since then. Throughout the Middle Ages, you have uh, basically city-states. Um, if you remember back, to, we talked about like Venice, we talked about Florence, Pisa, Genoa. Um, you basically have city-states that just kind of control things. They get a bit more um, unified as time goes on. So we're looking at a map here, and you see, for instance, uh, there are different kingdoms in Italy. The Papal States is right smack in the middle. That includes Rome. Um, you have the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which is where my family would have come from. Apulia, do you see where it says that on the map? Yeah, that's where the Bruno family uh, back in uh, 1911 lived until they decided to go to New York. Very nice. Uh, you can see that Tuscany is its own country. That's where uh, Florence is. Um, Sardinia would have been part, uh, would have had its own country as well. That's the big island um, in the middle of the uh, Mediterranean. Um, it's also, if you look at the part of Italy that's next to France and Switzerland, that's also part of the kingdom of Sardinia. So they basically have these different um, kind of states. They're still all separated from one another. Italians wanted to be unified in 1815. Um, everyone else kind of laughed at that idea. Um, Metternich, for instance, called the region a quote-unquote geographic expression um, and did not allow Italy to unify. Instead, they put a bunch of kings uh, in charge of these different parts of Italy and just kind of like set them off to do their own thing. Um, and by the time that Italy was ripe for unification, uh, their uh, different kingdoms were all parts of other empires. So, for instance, you can see that in the north, Lombardy, Venetia, which is where Venice and Milan, two major cities in the north of Italy, are. Um, that was part of the Aust Austrian Empire, for instance. So, they have to basically take back all of this Italian land from other stronger empires, which is going to be quite a bit of a challenge for them. Um... Slide number 20. Italy had tried to rebel in 1848, um, the same year that France and Germany rebelled. Uh, however, their rebellion was not successful. Surprise, surprise. Um, and outside forces soon reestablished their previous control over Italy. Uh, the nationalist movement, uh, the uh, Risorgimento, 
uh, which means resurgence in Italian, moved to the kingdom of Sardinia, so that island in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, that also has that part of Italy that's right next to Spain, I'm sorry, France and Switzerland. Um, it moved to the kingdom of Sardinia because the king there, Victor Emmanuel, Emanuele, Vittorio Emanuele, if you want to say it in Italian, um, he wanted to gain more power for himself and he figured if he took over all of Italy that'd be a good way to gain more power and so he really fosters the nationalist movement within his kingdom um they kind of help one another he gives them money and troops and they're going to theoretically give him all of Italy um and they'll all be in control under Victor Emmanuel he and his prime minister Count Emilio Cavour uh 